Here I come. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? <laughs> I got a six pack in the back. Thought we'd order a pizza. All right. Hi! <laughs> That was the best acting I've ever seen. Uh, we want to do a quick, uh, a quick little show to share our thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because uh, this is a film that we've been discussing for well over a year. We've been deeply invested and engaged in its development and its production, and we've been waiting for this release for a long, long time. So the payoff has finally arrived. I have seen it three times in three days, and uh, Adam, you've seen it as well, obviously. I have. I saw it once. I'm going to let it marinate marinate for me for a little bit before I go do a second viewing, but uh, yeah, yeah, I did see it. Yeah. See, I have no patience. Uh, if there's a piece <laughs> of meat, if there's a piece of meat there, I can't, I can't give it time to marinate. I got to bite into it again, so... <laughs> were you were you satisfied? Did it did it meet your anticipation? It did. It did. It uh I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh with some minor reservations. There are a few things about it that uh are quibbles with the first viewing, but they may not be quibbles when I see it a second time. That's the thing. With a Tarantino movie, sometimes the things that you're not quite sure about the first time, you go back and you rewatch it, and it's like, yeah, he, yeah, I'm with that decision. But there were a couple of things in there that uh, was a little, it just wasn't quite up to my sensibilities, but there's so much to love about the movie that there's no way I could I could give it a, a a negative review. I mean, it's I I do like it a lot. I just didn't love it as much as I thought I would. So if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's uh, and by the way, everyone, especially for international audiences, where the film hasn't been released yet, uh, I do want to discuss the ending. So this is going to be a spoilerific review. Mm-hmm. Tune out if you have not yet seen it. You know, when you watch it three times in a row, you see the seams, you see you see uh, the the transitions, and you you tend to see the patterns and the way things are being assembled. Yeah. And uh, and honestly, the second and third viewings felt a lot uh, faster paced for me than the first mm-hmm. viewing because I think you go in there and you expect it to be another very punchy Tarantino movie, which yeah. we've come to expect from every other thing that he's done. And this is, this mm-hmm. is different. It's not quite as punchy. It's not nearly as verbose as his other movies. And when you no. equate uh, Tarantino's number one strength, uh, you typically come up with, well, a, a master of dialogue. Um, and I think it's a credit to him that in this film, he found a way to to back off from that a little bit where every scene is not uh, a, a monologue um, or, or a snappy yeah. ex- exchange. It's a di- uh, he challenged himself in a different way, totally subverting a lot of expectations because if you recall, which I know you do, when he announced this, <laughs> this movie, you know, 
uh, glorifying the killers and yeah, to leave it to Tarantino. He'll 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 really pull in the reins to to respect Sharon Tate and everyone. And one thing after another, and he's making a Manson movie, and you couldn't convince anyone that uh, those weren't his intentions. Um, and those people are silent now, or they're or they're nitpicking and finding some other way to call him a misogynistic pig. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's this is very true. I uh, yeah, well, first of all, you, you know, the first fifteen minutes of the movie, or fifteen twenty minutes, I don't know, something like that. I felt like it was uh, uh, Brit, uh, Brad Pitt and DiCaprio had directed it themselves almost. <laughs> it just felt like they were doing their own thing, and and in a great way. I mean, it was fantastic. Uh, I loved what they were their business uh, in the early going. Pro- probably about the first thirty minutes, actually. Just really, really good stuff. Um, and you were talking about his maturity as a filmmaker. I thought it was interesting that for the first time that I can recall, and if I'm missing something, please correct me, but I don't recall him ever having a dog or a child in a previous movie, which he does prominently right. in this movie. That's that's something different that we've not seen in a Tarantino movie. In the, and both the child and the dog, the scenes involving both, um, they are very important in this movie, and so I thought that was that was a little bit of a step in a different direction for him. Uh, you know, for me, yeah. I felt something there. Very um, much so, and I will say, in terms of the because uh, the casting of this thing, I, I took it as it, it, he wanted it to resemble one of those, uh, not necessarily an Irwin Allen, but in that vein. Where yeah, sure. it's just an a, a, assemblage of all of these recognizable faces, mm-hmm. um, and all of them don't necessarily have fleshed out roles. Um, right. They they come on, you see them. It's almost and a special appearance by blah blah blah. And uh, of course they're all good because they're all great actors. But uh, yeah. I tell you what, uh, of the side performances, that little girl, Julia Butters, I think is her name, yeah. was really sensational. And she, she uh, totally held her own uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio in what I think is one of the movie's best scenes, mm-hmm. um, where he, she kind of exposes his insecurities. Um, yeah, that was good stuff. True. Uh, sure. Sque- yeah. uh, Dakota Fanning as Squeaky was very effective. I yep. thought Margaret Qualley uh, was great. Was a great find. Um, yeah, and Pacino Pacino does his job at the at the beginning, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he he was he was doing it and doing it quite well. I, I loved it. Do you now? We talked about we heard these rumors of this great monologue scene that was cut. Do you think it's something different beyond this? scene that we have because he's got a pretty good sizable monologue here at the beginning of the film but uh, we've we've heard rumors about another uh, a monologue that was cut so I'm wondering if that was the one that was reinstated or if there's another one that we haven't seen or we might see in a in the DVD extras or something I have a, I have I a feeling there 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 must be a lot of deleted stuff in this movie because whole cast members were cut out of it and you know, you, I saw publicity shots of Pacino sitting in the back of a limo or, or some kind mm-hmm. of car, and this was uh, this was not necessarily a publicity shot, uh, even though there is one of him in the back of a car. This was actually behind right. the scenes, somebody somebody on the street as they were shooting, and Pacino was sitting in the back of a car, 
So I assume mm-hmm. there was a big scene in a car that maybe they cut out, but I don't know for sure. But I'm sure there there are lots of lots of things that will end up in a Blu-ray, hopefully. Yeah, well, he he did say, and I saw this in an interview. He did say that his original everything but the kitchen sink cut was four hours and twenty minutes. Yeah. So he did say that. So that means there's an extra. There's basically another movie that we're not seeing. An hour and forty minutes worth of footage that constitutes almost an entire other movie. So I don't know if all that will show up. Uh, you know, it seems like he's been doing a lot more judicious trimming. Uh, I know The Hateful Eight is now on Netflix in a extended version that's about 40 minutes longer. So the, the, apparently there was quite a bit of stuff that was trimmed from that as well that has been reinstated. So I don't know. He, it seems like he's he's cutting away a lot of stuff. He's filming more than he's using here in these last couple of films, and this seems like a trend maybe that he's you know that he's on for whatever reason. But I knew with six yeah. months of filming that movie, there had to be a lot of stuff. There had to be, you know. And in terms of photography, because I'm, you know, I haven't done it yet, but I'm I'm going to write uh, Robert Richardson a letter, an email. I don't write letters anymore. I'm not Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> uh, but uh, I remember the last time I did that was for Django, and uh, so I'll, I'll send him another congratulatory email this time around because I think his work is really stunning, in a way it that is. totally totally complements the movie, and yet. There's nothing show-offy about it necessarily that draws attention to itself, um, but it, 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 it does aid in fully immersing you in that world. And there's something very special yeah. about the, the color scheme, the, the burnished, uh, the burnished oranges and blues, and um, and 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 the the lower the lowly lit the lower lit uh, scenes, particularly towards the end. Uh, mm-hmm. In DiCaprio's house at the end sequence, um, it's very it's very dark, but it's it's lit in a way that's almost uh, dreamlike. Um, and and to to get that kind of <clears throat> get that kind of balance, it's, it's amazing. And there's a gorgeous shot of close up of Sharon Tate while she's driving the Porsche. And I think it's Judy Collins singing on the soundtrack. Actually, but, uh, I was going to get to that. What? It's actually Buffy St. Marie, uh, The Circle Game is the name of the song. Okay. And that, yeah, that's fantastic. I love that sequence. Yeah, I was going to say. The, and the, just the, the song he chose for that and, and the, the the cinematography is just, yeah, that was one of my favorite individual scenes in the movie. Uh, I love that. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought well, that up. Well, yeah, and, and, and yeah, and it's close on her face. And mm-hmm. she's just flawless and happy and hopeful, and and uh, and then she pulls over to pick up the hitchhiker. Uh, and yeah. then there's there's individual shots that I just adore. There's a close up of Squeaky. You see the screen door up against her face, and it's close up on her face. That's one of the most menacing images in the movie. Yeah. Um, and then there's there's the shot that I absolutely want to live in. Um. <laughs> and it's only on mm-hmm. screen for literally like two seconds. And it's the very first glimpse you have of Margot Robbie. It's at the very beginning. It's uh, the song Treat or Right is playing. And the camera oh, yeah. pans up from, the, from inside the steps of the Pan Am airplane. And she's 
in there with a big group dancing in the plane. And then it's just, as soon as it registers, it kind of shuts off. And I'm like, no, 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 hold a little longer. <laughs> I want to live in that moment. Hang on. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's an ex- ex- and there's a lot of air. There's a lot of uh, aerial stuff. There's a lot of st- stuff shot from up in the air, looking down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure thematically uh, if that was intentional to kind of p- bring out the resonance of this looking back, kind of from a from a perspective from a certain perspective or not, or if it was just a matter of getting all the information in in one frame of of the way they transform things but um mm-hmm. but that's also impressive and and the amount of driving in the movie i mean the the la is a driving culture it's a car that's culture right. it always has been so uh and i thought those driving scenes were magnificent and especially i loved the when brad pitt first leaves dicaprio's house and said you don't need anything else i'm going to take off and he gets in his car and you see him drive out of Cielo and then cuts and he's driving through Hollywood Boulevard with just great music. I mean, speeding through Hollywood Boulevard and then he's on the freeway and then he goes off to his, to, to show that, look, Pitt exists in, in this world in a peripheral sense, the Hollywood glamour world. Yeah. But he doesn't live anywhere near Hollywood. He's one of those guys mm-hmm. that works in town, but he lives way outside of town. And, yeah, and I like that. I like the amount of time that they spent showing that journey to to establish that about him. Yeah, it's a great. That's a great point. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and I guess we could talk about the musical selections. I mean, I thought, I, well, well, music in general in the movie is pretty important. I think it's interesting how the movie. It almost reminds you of American Graffiti. The way the music is also a character mm-hmm. in the film, I think um, it just runs. Every character has a, has a radio going uh, just constantly. There's a constant stream of music in the background, and and some of the musical choices that he makes are quite interesting. Uh, I noticed towards the end of the movie, he does he he put in um, this version of out of out of touch by the Rolling Stones, which I one of my favorite songs by the Rolling Stones, but it was a version that I'd never heard before, and I had to come home and do some research, and I, I realized why. I, I, I thought, well, it sounds like the same song, the the same recording, but there's something different. I can't figure out what it is, and I came home and did some research, and I found out there was an alternate version recorded where they added strings to it. That's why it sounded different to my ears, that there was there were strings mm-hmm. in there that weren't in the original hit version. So I I just think that's interesting little touches like that you know with the music that he he could have gone for the tired and worn out you know single version but no he goes for an an alternate version of the same of the the song that that we know but he he tweaks it a little bit by getting something just slightly different you know and uh, putting yeah it is on. it is amazing his musical choices and and uh, yeah the um. I mean, there's so many great tunes in the movie, but what what most struck me musically was how he sources film scores again, uh, especially at the very last scene. There's mm-hmm. an instrumental, there's an instrumental, and it's a piece of score from Maurice Jarre from the Life and Times of Judge Boy Bean. And, uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. It's like what a what a random selection of film score, but oh my god, it just works so beautifully. And what he did, and you're right, the, the music and the radio, uh, 
um, because you spend so much time in your car. And so it's also a radio culture, L.A. Uh, yep. And that's, that's the through line in the movie, uh, is, is that radio. And what happened was, I forget the call letters of the radio station, KH something. I didn't grow up in Los Angeles, but it was, it was a popular radio station in L.A. back at that time. And he found people who had actually physically audio recorded broadcasts from that radio station in that year. Mm-hmm. And he he found 14 hours of it, and he just started listening to it. And then that inspired him to come up with the idea, well, this is like the ongoing, this is almost like the narrator th- throughout the course of the movie. Yeah. It would be a great through line. And he discovered some of those songs from from those tracks that they played on those radio recordings. I only want you to listen to this uh, commercial if you're under 25. It's about new Tanya tanning butter. The suntan product with no sunscreen added. Uh, and you know what that means. It means the only ingredients between you and the sun are natural coconut oil and cocoa butter. Hawaii's favorites. That and a little lava smoke thrown in there. for Tanya, Tanya tanning butter is guaranteed to give you really deep Hawaiian tan faster than you ever thought possible. It's so fast, in fact, that you might even burn a little bit, but we've all done that. Not enough to hurt, though. If you want the deepest, fastest Hawaiian tan on the beach, you better pick up on some Tanya tanning butter. Prices start at a low 85 cents. That's a small price to pay. Let's face it. A deeper, faster Hawaiian tan. That's what you get when you use Tanya. Above all else, it's a great L.A. movie. It's going to take its place in the pantheon of great L.A. movies, I think, and great Mm -hmm. period uh, movies, great movies about making movies and television. I mean, there's a lot of boxes that this movie fits into, yeah, I, I totally agree. And you know, the technical the, uh, of course we knew that the technical details were going to be uh, phenomenal and they do not disappoint. Um I you know, even the benches have the names yeah. of the local anchors at that time in Los Angeles. So whatever the new, nightly news anchors were, they're advertised on the benches on the streets, which you know, just little details like that that you really pick up on uh just amazing so yeah on one level it, it it's so fantastic because if you want to be transported because you and I feel the same way we we wish that we could have been alive and lived out in southern california during that period of time and this is the closest oppor- the best opportunity we're going to have to experience that is in this movie because you are transported to another world and it's yeah. the uh it's it's that so yeah if you want to live in 1969, Los Angeles, well, this is your movie and this is your opportunity. So I, I want to stress that to people, if that's something that appeals to you, uh, if for no other reason. Even if you don't give two cents about the story, uh, just you know, you will be transported. Let's just put it that way. And I think, I think some people feel that way. I read one comment from someone who watched the movie with a grandfather or father or something and he said it was akin to watching the uh, Private Ryan with with a World War II veteran, and they come mm-hmm. out shaking because they they feel like they've re-experienced something. I mean, it was yeah. vivid. 
And he said, look, my father or grandfather, they lived there during that year, and they just walked out saying, how did they replicate it? I mean, just from a just a, from a tactile sense, just yeah, uh, there's, there's it, it, it transcends the, the refurbishing of buildings and and signs and stuff. It's just it, it feels right. They say. Yep. Absolutely, it really does. And so uh, they got all of that right. And yeah, it's kudos to the production team for that because uh, it is amazing, an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, it is. In terms that being of what said, they, I mean there there are I mean the Playboy Mansion was not opened until 1971. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, it, it, which brings up an interesting point: Tarantino's relationship with factual history, mm-hmm. um, uh, which I uh, I kind I appreciate uh, because I I take it at face value, even when he veers from it. He's not far from the truth. It's it's based in some semblance, semblance of what actually occurred. So Polanski mm-hmm. and Sharon Tate, there's a famous interview with them in the Playboy After Dark show, and they're sitting there with Hugh Hefner. Um, so it's not far removed from what would eventually be the Playboy Mansion, but that interview happened in, I think, their Chicago nightclub because they had not yet purchased the Playboy Mansion when they did that interview. But it's, That's correct. it's one degree. It's one degree away, and you don't want to. Uh, if you can get the Playboy Mansion <laughs> in California, and it's another big set piece, and it, it provides an excuse to get all of these stars together, uh, yeah. then you do it. You know. That's right. But you know, some of the factual stuff he's he's absolutely correct about, um, like the scene where Charles Manson shows up at their at their door. You're looking for Terry Melcher. And yet, he's, uh, and yet he's not correct on it. And he knows he's not correct on it. Because Charles yeah. Manson, uh, Jay Sebring, I don't think Jay Sebring was there, but even if he was, he wasn't the one that talked to Manson. He wasn't the one that encountered Manson. And it wasn't yeah. at the front of the house. It was in the back by the pool. But mm-hmm. um, uh, that's the one problem I had with it. And, and, and thankfully, Manson's only in it for 10, 15 seconds. Yeah, it's not long. And it is a it is a it is a good scene. And there's that great image of Manson looking over Jay Sebring's shoulder to see Sharon in the doorway. Mm-hmm. Um, Manson looks way too manicured. Uh, he looks like he. Just, I agree. He just, he just bought that stuff out of a Sears catalog or something. And, <laughs> uh, he, Manson was a was a scrawny, you know, it's, vagabond. Yeah, he looks like Jay Sebring just gave him a haircut, basically. <laughs> That's what I thought about. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I but agree. he's only I in it for a few seconds, and it's fine. And uh, it's you know, uh, the movie assumes that you come to it with a certain amount of knowledge. Yeah, that's and right. if you don't, that that you'll like the movie enough to be inspired to actually look up the real events that the movie is referencing. So I can see, and I know it's happened, I can see a lot of people walking into this movie and being totally confused by a good chunk of it, not knowing mm-hmm. what the hell is happening. I mean, the case in yeah. point, there was one, pers- one person who said that he was in the theater when Manson walked into the house, and Sharon Tate had just mentioned Jim Morrison. 
Mm. Uh, so do, would your client Jim Morrison be upset that I'm listening to Paul Revere and the Raiders or what, whatever? And then you see Manson walking behind her through the window. And somebody in the yeah. audience thought that was thought that was Jim Morrison. Huh. Uh, so, I mean, it, there's the... But you can't make movies for the lowest common denominator. And, and, and absolutely what what we've been pushing for for so many years on this show is, man, don't, don't under, you, you underestimate the, uh, you make movies for stupid people, uh, make movies for smart people, make movies that you want to go back and, 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 and look into more and figure out more, uh, more of its history and that kind of thing mm-hmm. that it deals with. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, and this is a movie that, you know, I know in years to come, I'm going to, it's going to be a repeat, uh, a repeat performer in my household. I know that for a fact. I knew that when I saw it. And uh, even though I have some reservations about a few a few things, a few minor quibbles, I guess, uh, it's still something that I'm going to return to. Uh, so, uh, and I know. And then I, leaving I, the end, the end of it, the, the the Kasabian character leaving them, deserting mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Obviously, obviously that didn't happen. But by the same. Token, the next night at LaBianca's, the killers were left, and they had to hitch a ride back to the ranch. Mm-hmm. And also, I understand why he did that because he he has to he has to figure out what to do with the uh, the the fourth kill the fourth fourth person, Kasabian, who was not in the house, did not commit any murders. Uh, he has to figure out what to do with her, and if she's in re- like she was in reality, out by the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to account for that that some somehow. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you want Brad Pitt to do? Run out to the car and kill the girl and walk by? I mean, you don't want to do that. So you got to find a way to get rid of her. <laughs> so I I understand yeah. narratively why why he chose to have her take off. Um, sure. You know there are little things like that that uh, the more you know the actual story, the better it plays because you see how clever he is in manipulating certain elements. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, you know, a minor quibble that I have was I did feel I feel like there were a couple of scenes in the movie that, that did run a little bit long for my taste. They just seemed to ramble on a little bit longer than I, you know, I kind of got antsy a time or two. So that was a minor quibble, just a few, like the, like the, um, when they when they get into the sequence where he's doing uh, he's on the western tv show where he has his breakdown the breakdown stuff was really intriguing and fascinating but then it went on after that a little bit long i thought to the point where he, they were almost having an episode of a tv show in the middle of the movie and i thought well they could have trimmed that just a little bit i believe made it a little tighter and that would have uh, that might have worked a little better and maybe i'll feel differently like i said the second time out uh, but that was just that was just my own preference. Uh, some people are going to dig it uh, and think that it's perfect length, but that was just me, uh, and I realized that. And then the ending of it, you know, as we were going to say, and here comes spoiler alert. <laughs> um, of course, he does rewrite history as he did in Inglorious Bastards, and I don't know how I, I didn't. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that still. Uh, it's almost played as a um, dark comedy uh, instead of this grand yeah. tragedy. And the audience I was with were laughing hysterically. I mean, they were laughing just uh, just out of their minds with laughter. And I, I don't know, it's such a somber thing that happened. And I, I guess I, you know, 
have just lived with that for so many years, it's hard for me to switch my emotional gears and get on board with this whole thing being turned into a, a, a just a dark comedy as it is in the movie and that's I, I have a little bit of a problem with that I, I have to admit I mean yeah I mean it was entertaining as hell and uh, and I did laugh as well but then when it was over with I thought you know emotionally he could have really amped up the drama with this I mean there's a number of ways he could have gone with it he could have had the Brad Pitt character out walking the dogs and he hears these screams and he runs up to the, you know, jumps the fence or whatever and runs up to the house and he could catch them right in the middle of, you know, what really happened or something like that. There are all kinds of dramatic possibilities that really could have made it, kept it in tone with what really happened and still insert these fictional characters into the proceedings that I think might have worked a little better. But, you know, it is what it is. And again, I might feel differently uh, on a second viewing. But uh, I had a little, I had a little problem with that. I, I have to admit. Um, so, well, as you know, I mean, I've lived, I've, I, I mean, I've lived and been horrified by beasts. You know, they're unspeakable. It just uh, you can't yeah. fathom what the atmosphere must have been like in that house that night, and the totality mm-hmm. of what of what was taken that night. But um, yeah. So I was trepidatious about the ending too. And then I saw the ending, and I absolutely loved it because this is okay. this is this is a fantasy version. Yeah, and we have lived with fifty years of these boogeymen and women going into this home and massacring everyone, and he he completely took the took the spit out of them. I mean, he I, yep. I I loved I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. No, it was dumber than that. I, I just I love that he totally removed the venom uh, out of because these these people these killers have yep. gained gained this notoriety and and legendary status somehow in the culture and but what I what I was particularly taken by was the very end because um, and every single time I've seen it. Uh, I walk out of the theater just crying because it, it, mm. the ending is so incredibly intensely moving to me that the ending allows Rick Dalton the, the chance that has been el- eluding him, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, of course, it's a fairy tale ending for Sharon Tate and everyone else in that house that night. And yeah. uh, to to be able to contemplate that alternate reality uh, where this beautiful eight and a half month pregnant woman uh, the cusp of a career and the prime of her life um, did not end up stabbed to death crying for her mother Uh, that's incredibly moving to me and uh, I just yet another moment that I wanted to, to live in forever Mm-hmm. Uh, and and by portraying a rosier outcome, I think it really brings the horror of what actually happened and makes it even more palpable. Because you yeah. you do get a sense of you do really get a sense of what was lost. And and Sharon Tate, she, the way she's portrayed in the movie, I I do think we could have seen mo- more of her. But. Um, 
I understand what he was using her for. She's she's kind of this lovely specter in the movie that kind of hangs over the movie. She's the she's the idealism and the hope and the promise and the light that uh, that uh, represents the, the the best, the dreams of that world. And then you have uh, DiCaprio as as the alternate version of that someone whose life is really pretty good but they're so consumed with status and all this kind of stuff that they can't enjoy their life and their success yeah meanwhile Sharon, Sharon Tate is so open and beautiful and radiant and when she, when the girl at the box office wants to take a photo of her she's like no no stand by the poster so so people will know who you are and she's like okay you know <laughs> yeah uh, right right yeah, I, I I do feel like I could have possibly seen more of her, but she needs to be she needs to be an idea in this movie. Yeah, I think it's the best ending I've ever seen in a movie, and and because it gets me every time I see it, and and mm-hmm. I can't stop replaying that moment in my mind, and I do, and it's amazing to me how he switched gears so quickly between. The, the violence in that in that next to the last scene to just totally tender sweetness in the very last scene of the movie. I mean from literally from one scene to the next, he's totally shifted gears and it played effortlessly to me. It made total sense. Yeah, I mean I, like I said, I enjoyed it while it was playing out, but uh you know, I just I think my expectations were for something that just didn't happen, and it's probably my own personal baggage because I was I was kind of ramped up for more of a dramatic ending that just didn't happen, and um, that's that's my own personal cross to bear, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I, the end of it where everybody kind of lives happily ever after, yeah, that was that was nice. Uh, it is a nice touch. The way they show them all walking off at the end there, so yeah, and and I uh, I I can see where you're coming from with all that, yeah, absolutely. So all of that is is valid, everything you just said. So so yeah, totally totally makes sense. But uh, there's use but of still. California dreaming, California dreaming um, when uh, she's walking out of the theater, and, and oh, yeah. we're entering a new a new chap chapter now. Uh, yeah. It feels feels very wistful and haunting, as does that final music. That's what really gets me about that final music mm-hmm. uh, from the, from Maurice Jarre is it, it's both wistful and haunting. Yeah, um, good. Which I think, in general, that that's what the movie is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, it's uh like I said there's a lot to like about it and uh even though I do have some minor reservations uh I will see it again. I can't wait to own a copy of it. Um and I would highly recommend people our listeners to see it if you haven't, if you're on the fence and you're thinking, well, it's just another Tarantino movie, I I definitely would strongly recommend people to see it. Um and um you know, cuz there's so much to enjoy about it and so that's my final DiCaprio's, verdict. DiCaprio's great. He uh, and what surprised me is he adopts this stutter 
uh, yeah. because psychologically he is so tormented about the shape of his career and what might have been and where he is mm-hmm. that it, it expresses itself in the in the stammering that he he has. He's a uh, such a confident actor, and um, he's willing to do things like that hullabaloo scene, which is just hysterical. Oh, that was great. That was so great, yes. Totally. Uh, which I, I I do really like the cutting in the uh, in that opening scene with Ian Pacino where they're going through the beats of Rick Dalton's career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I don't think the opening narration is necessary when he when Kurt Russell chimes in with one line about how Rick was pulled over for a DUI and that's why Cliff Booth has to drive him. And, it made more sense for uh, there to be the narrator towards the end because mm-hmm. there was a lot of explaining to do. But um, uh, but that opening narration was just distracting uh, because it came out of nowhere and then it disappeared. You didn't hear from it again for another hour and a half. Um, That's true. Yeah, that was a little odd. I'll, I'll give you that. All the detail and, and Brad Pitt obviously is getting the bulk of the love for this movie he, because he is. Uh, He's iconic in this movie. He's got a, a lot of great moments, and um, mm-hmm. and so he's he's rightfully praised for this performance. He's he's very great, very good in it. But Tom oh, Cruise would have been his... good as well. And with, when thinking oh, yeah. about Tom Cruise, uh, it pisses me off because Tom Cruise had first dibs on that role, and. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe there are other reasons why he passed it up, but he should not have passed it up. Even if it meant Agreed. Top Gun 2, Top Gun 2 would have taken a little bit longer. I'm tired of him making kiddie movies. Um, yeah, me too. He's such a great actor. And passing actor up the opportunity. Talented. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, 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 he would have been perfect for it as well. And it would have done, done a lot for him as, as an actor. He doesn't mm-hmm. seem necessarily so interested in that anymore. No, and it's uh, kind of sad. It really is. Well, it's not kind of. It is sad. Let's just say it. So, uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. Totally. Anyway, so I, I do, I do have a little, little problems with it. I've already talked about, and 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 it doesn't, it doesn't totally congeal for me. There, mm-hmm. there's one great sequence after another. But when you put all this tapestry together, it doesn't quite gel as solidly as I, I'd like it to. But I agree. That's that's a good point. But I do think it's a between this and Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards, I think that's the 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 grand trifecta in Tarantino's career so far. <laughs> <laughs> 